Well, I'm Todd Bolander, and I've been attending Gulf Coast for about two and a half years now. And I usually hang out and do podcasting stuff. I'm one of the website guys, so Darren is the elder sort of in charge of the website, and I'm one of the guys he turns to when it breaks, and or I'm one of the guys who breaks it and then he turns to or turns on, as the case may be. That's one of my roles. I also have a... We lead a Greek, ancient Greek class here at church with a couple of the guys and some pastors from other churches, and I teach that. My background is I've studied, studied ancient languages at the university level, and now I teach high school literature and writing at Calvary Christian High School in Clearwater. So that's a little bit about me. So you have some sense of who this guy is who's rambling on in front of you for the next 45 minutes or so. Yes, Jerry. It might be worthy of note that you, you were just affirmed as an elder. Mm-hmm. 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 Thank you. Yes, that is true. That is true. So it is somehow has devolved to me to do the discussion where I talk about how elders rightfully have authority in the church. Somehow I got... Uh, uh, yeah. yeah, so... Yeah, <laughs> it got assigned to me. I didn't get a vote. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, but I appreciate it. We've, the church, uh, for those of you who, who may not be as familiar, the church within the last couple of years has been through major changes in its governmental structure, in its polity, in the way that it's organized, and its, shall we say, denominational affiliation. So the church has been undergoing some changes. So there's been a growing process and a, and a shifting process in the way we've understood, to, to a small degree, how, how the Bible talks about leadership. But more importantly, not so much that there was a great change in understanding as much as there was a new need for implementing what the elders already saw in the Bible. That, that transition we are now walking through, we're a long ways through it, so the, the affirmation of elders was a big step here recently in moving in that direction of changing the way the church um, governmental structure is implemented here. So tonight, I get the joy of talking to you all about servanthood, authority, and accountability, the way the church leadership functions. And I thought I'd start off with this story. Uh, A DEA officer stopped at a ranch in North Texas. He briskly walked over to the rancher and told him, My department has received anonymous tips, and I need to inspect your ranch for illegal substances. And the rancher said, Okay, but don't go in that field over there as he pointed to a large fenced-in field to his, I guess I pointed right to his left. Before he could finish his sentence, though, the DEA officer exploded. Mister, I have the authority of the United States federal government with me. He continued yelling at the rancher and reached into his rear pants pocket to remove his badge, which he shoved in the rancher's face. He said, do you see this badge? This badge means I'm allowed to go wherever I want on any land. No questions asked. Have I made myself clear? The old rancher nodded politely, apologized, and went about his chores. The DEA officer stormed off to the very field the rancher had pointed at, scaled the fence, and proceeded over the next hill. Only a few minutes passed, and the old rancher heard loud screams. He looked up and saw the DEA officer running for his life, chased by that rancher's largest bull at a full gallop. With every step... The bull was gaining ground on the officer, and it seemed like he was sure to be gored before he could reach safety. The officer screamed at the rancher to help him. The rancher threw down his tools, ran to the fence, scaled to the top of it, and yelled at the top of his lungs, Just show him your badge! (laughs) Authority and accountability are not topics that people in our culture are. Uh, typically think of in positive terms. The portrayal of an arrogant law enforcement officer in that story reflects in some ways the attitude that most of us grow up with in our society. Authority figures are caught up in their power and blind to basic realities, or so that thought process tends to go. 
The Bible, on the other hand, is comfortable with concepts of authority and accountability. It speaks plainly that God is the one source of authority in the universe and that he delegates portions of that authority to people for his own purposes. From the beginning, God delegated part of his authority over creation to the first humans so that they would have and I'm quoting Genesis 1.26 here, dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Yet man remained subject to his creator's authority. And even before God gave Adam a wife, God bound him by the authority of his command, not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So my point in all of this is to push our thinking about authority into a biblical position and away from the standard reaction to authority that cries out for freedom. Let's abandon the you're not the boss of me thinking in favor of thinking that asks to whom God has properly granted authority and how that should look in the church. The first point you'll see on your handout is that God gives the gift of leadership to the local church. The first thing that we ought to acknowledge about leadership and authority in the church is that God views leaders as gifts. According to Ephesians 4, Christ did not leave his body without direction at his ascension. He gave leaders as gifts to the church to care for its members. God has appointed leaders within the local church to enable the building of his church and the spread of the gospel. God's desire is for churches to experience maturity, stability, and faithfulness that result when leadership and care are extended by gifted leaders with proven character. So let's uh, all turn, if you would, in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4. Is anyone willing to read verses 7 through 14 for me? But to every one of us has grace in the measure of the the giving of Christ. For this... How far do you want me to read? Uh, From 7 through 14. For this reason, he says, he went up on high, taking his prisoners with him, and gave freely to men. Now this went up, what is it, but that the first went down into the lower parts of the earth. He who went down is the same who went up for over all the heavens, so that he might make all things complete. And he gave some as apostles and some prophets, some preachers of the good news, and some to give care and teaching for the training of the saints as servants in the church, for the building up of the body of Christ, till we all come to the harmony of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to to full growth, to full measure of Christ, so that we may be no longer children sent this way and that, turned about by every wind of teaching, by the twisting and tricks of men, by the deceits of earth. Good. Thank you very much. As these verses imply, it was the wisdom and generosity of Christ to provide leaders to the church. Despite contemporary liberal views, leadership in the church was not the invention of men. We didn't come up with it. It's Jesus who selected apostles, and according to the New Testament, it's Jesus who sovereignly supplies his people with men who are gifted to lead that church. The various leaders given to the church are gifts provided to express the loving care of Christ for his bride. Godly Christian leaders are a demonstration of the Lord's kindness to his people because he wishes his church and its members to grow into spiritual maturity. As Paul points out, Christ intends leaders to equip the saints for ministry, to to strengthen the church for its mission, to protect it from error, and to point believers to the head of the church, Jesus Christ. In other words, Christ is the shepherd of the church, and leaders in his church are under-shepherds. This means there is no human who is the head of the church on earth. Christ alone is the single head to whom all leaders in the church ought to direct the affections and obedience of the members. The gifts of leaders are central to Jesus' plan for the growth of the church, so how leadership functions in the church is a very important matter. So that's the first way I want us to change as far as the way our culture tends to think about authority 
and tend to say, I'm free, don't tell me what to do. Instead, the Bible says, look, we're created beings. We're all subject to authority at one level or another. We just need to find out where, where we are in that, in, that, in that structure. We need to, and then submit to that structure as we ought. Who are the leaders in Christ's church under section 2 there? Despite the tendency in many traditions to refer to leaders in the church as pastors, the most common word in the New Testament for those who lead the church is elders. And I know that this isn't my first church or church experience, and so I've been in a couple of backgrounds, Christian backgrounds, and perhaps the most common one I've heard typically is pastor. Uh, the one who stands up in front every morning is pastor, and he's the one that preaches, and hey, pastor, such and such. And that's what you call someone who's, at least in Protestant tradition, that's what you call someone who, who is in the decision-making capacity of the church. But in fact, the word elder is far more common in Acts chapter 11, verse 30. I'm going to rattle off just a few of these to just to sort of demonstrate how frequent the term elder is. Acts chapter 11, verse 30 Chapter 14, verse 23, chapter 15, verses 2, 4, 6, and 22 through 23, Acts chapter 16, verse 4, Acts chapter 20, verse 17, and Acts chapter 21, verse 18, Paul is appointing elders and meeting with elders in Jerusalem, even along with the apostles, which means they weren't always synonymous. In Additionally, in 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 19, Paul commands double honor for elders who rule well and those who labor in the word and teaching. In Titus 1, 5, Paul tells Titus he left him to appoint elders in every town. In James 5, 14, James tells those who are sick to call for the elders of the church. And in 1 Peter 5, 1, he addresses elders as a fellow elder. And then 2 John 1, 1 and 3 John 1, 1, John refers to himself as the elder or an elder. This is by far the most common term used in the New Testament for those who are in leadership in the church. So the Greek word for elder is presbyteros. You probably recognize that that's the origin for the term Presbyterian. So Presbyterian forms of church government are elder-led forms of government. And because church leaders are most often called elders in the New Testament, Gulf Coast refers to the office of its decision-making leaders as elders. We still use the word pastor, but our bylaws are written as elders, vocational and non-vocational elders. That's the way it's written in the bylaws. So if you pull down the bylaws at some time to say, hey, how is this place run? You, you won't really find the word pastor in there. You'll find elder. I think it's mentioned once as synonymous with elder. There are, however, two more ways that the New Testament repeatedly refers to elders, and these are the sources of the different leadership titles we're accustomed to hearing. The titles are overseer, and that's also translated bishop in English translation, and pastor, which is also translated as shepherd. So if you take a look with me at Acts chapter 20 and uh, verse 17 and then again in verse 28, Paul is on his way traveling from Greece past Asia Minor headed towards Jerusalem and he stops off to meet with the Ephesian elders the church at Ephesus. So verse 17, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And then down in verse 28, he's speaking to them. So we know to whom he's speaking. He's speaking to the elders of the church at Ephesus. And here's what he says to them. Pay careful attention to yourselves. I'm reading in verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So he's talking to elders, and he calls them, says the Holy Spirit has made them overseers. This is the same word, bishop. To care for, and some translations render it shepherd. There's our word pastor or shepherd. To shepherd the church of God, which he ordained, uh, sorry, which he obtained with his blood. 
So in this section, Luke records Paul calling on the presbyteroi, the elders of Ephesus, to share some parting instructions with them on his way to Jerusalem. As part of his warning, Paul tells these presbyteroi, elders, to look for each other, look out for each other, and the flock over which the Spirit has made them episcopoi, overseers. Now, episkopos here is the second most common term used in the New Testament to describe local church leaders. Despite our tradition, pastor is actually the least commonly used term in the Bible. So it's, we've sort of flipped it on its head. So this is the term, this term episkopos, overseer or bishop, this is the term used by Paul in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1.7 when he outlines the qualification for elders in the church. Thirdly, Paul tells these Ephesian elders in Acts 20 to shepherd the church of God. The Greek verb in this passage, poimino, is the verbal form of the noun that we find in Ephesians 4.11 that Barbara read for us earlier, where the last of the gifts was pastors and teachers, or shepherds and teachers, those who shepherd and teach. It's the same word. So this same word group is variously translated shepherd or pastor in the New Testament. So these are the three terms that the New Testament uses. Presbyteros, episkopos, and poimen. And they all describe the same people. They all describe the same office of the local church. Now, just so you see that it's not only in Acts 20 that we get this, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. Let's see here. How about, will someone read verses 1 through 4 for me? 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 through 4. Thank you, Randy. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's suffering, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Thank you. So here you have the same three terms Peter is uh, referring to his addressees as elders, and then he tells them to shepherd because they are to, in in verse 2, to exercise oversight, which is the verb episcopeo. So he tells them using the same three words that Luke used in Acts, that Paul uses when he's talking to the Ephesian elders, these same three words. Our conclusion from this as a church is that the evidence from the New Testament text overwhelmingly demonstrate that the terms elders, overseer, and pastor are used interchangeably to refer to the same office. These all refer to the same office from a different vantage point. Elder speaks of the office, overseer speaks of his responsibility, and pastor speaks of how it is to be carried out, that is, by caring for people, nurturing them, caring for the flock. Uh, You can see there in the quotation from Daniel Aiken, basically summarizing the same point that we're making here, that the three terms are all interchangeable. And he adds in something we'll talk about, and this is sort of the outgrowth of, of what we find out when we realize that every time the New Testament is talking about elders and overseers and shepherds, we start lining up all the things that it says about those, there are a couple of important conclusions that we have to draw. That if you don't see them that way, you might not draw these same conclusions, which is why some branches of Christendom won't, won't draw the same conclusions that we do about plurality and character and those sorts of things. Like the Catholic Church, they're going to read the word bishop and see something very different there. So here are uh, two important some points that grow out of this. And you see the one there, character is essential. So when it comes to an elder, character is essential. Namely, that leadership in the church is leadership that's by example first and foremost. Character is of the essence in the leadership of Christ's church. 
If you look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, this is where we get Paul listing for Timothy the qualifications for those who seek the office of the overseer. And most of these requirements relate to an elder's character, most of them. There are a couple that have to do with marriage, other with how long he's been a believer, but for the most part, they have to do with character. There's one in particular that distinguishes the elder from, say, another office, the office of deacon, and that's the ability to teach, that he is capable of teaching. Because as an elder, a shepherd, an overseer, one of the primary ways in which an elder exercises that office is in instruction, teaching. If you go back and look at Ephesians chapter 4, it talks about coming to a knowledge of God and avoiding error and not being deceived or swayed by different doctrines. All of that has to do with teaching. And so the, one of the main emphasis that an elder should be, that distinguishes that elder from other members of the church is the ability to teach gospel doctrine in a way that not everyone can. So what we find if we look at, say, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, where Paul lists these qualifications, is that what an elder knows, even though it's crucial that an elder know the gospel and know the Bible and be a gifted teacher, it's, it's what distinguishes him in many respects. It doesn't supersede how he lives. That's not more important than his character. No amount of gifting and talent grants a leader immunity from walking in an upright manner. A man must first be an elder in character, in lifestyle. Someone, someone else can, can look up to. And then only then can he actually do the work of an elder, of shepherding, correcting, protecting. Elders are to lead lives of integrity, faithfully modeling biblical standards for the Christian life. Pastors are certainly not sinless, but there should be a consistent display in their lives of the character qualities listed by Paul. So when I talk about this, I tend to underscore that elders ought to demonstrate all of those qualifications that Paul lists. That's, that's, that's the ground level. That's the minimum. And then on top of it, they should exhibit something that other believers want to follow after. You're not much of a leader if you don't have anyone following you. So there should be some aspect of either their abilities or character that other mature believers look to and say, I can learn from this person. I can follow him when he exercises this gift, his hospitality. Man, I can really learn from this elder's hospitality. Or, wow, I can really sit under this man's teaching. Or, this, this man is patient and he's gracious. And he really, he really empathizes. Any of those sorts of character traits lift, listed there in uh, 1 Timothy. We should see people, men, one of the ways we choose or look to choose is, can I emulate that man? Can, is, he, is he someone that could say to one degree or another, like Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ? So that's the first point, that as we begin to look through the New Testament and see all of these titles referring to the same office, that character is essential. It's not, it's not just what the man knows. Also, number two is there, uh, there is that a plurality of leadership is the model for the local church. Local church leadership in the New Testament was a shared endeavor. For this reason, let's see, when we look at the word elder in the New Testament, we're talking about leadership and eldership, it typically is in the plural. Typically is in the plural. Plurality is a way to describe the scriptural evidence that more than one leader was present in each of the New Testament churches. So churches were formed and leaders were appointed as elders relatively quickly. It didn't take decades to find elders in the early church. And we know this because in Acts 14... Paul and Barnabas are taking another one of their return trips on their missionary tours, and they hadn't been gone that long since planning these churches, and then they're coming back through and appointing elders. So the church operated for some time without elders, 
But this is probably what Paul was referring to when he spoke to Titus and said he had unfinished business, that they needed to appoint elders. So if we look at a few passages, Acts 14.23, the one I was just mentioning, states, And when they had appointed elders, plural, for them in every church with, parent, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And then again, if you flip over to Acts 20, verse 17, this passage that I read before about the trip to Jerusalem, where Paul calls for the Ephesian elders, it says, From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders, plural, of the church. Elders, plural. And then in Titus 1, 5, Paul states, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders, plural, in every town as I directed you. So in the New Testament, leadership authority in a church rests with the elders as a whole, not with one individual elder. This provides protection for the church. No one person runs the church as the president or some CEO. And that's important because that may be distinct from some of your experiences. I know that wasn't what I grew up in. I grew up in there was a pastor and basically what he said went and there were boards of deacons and they butted heads with each other and that was how the church functioned or didn't, as the case may be. (laughs) The elders are a brotherhood. They're a group. And they act in unison as the decision-making authority of the church. The New Testament does not present a model of church government based around a single personality or around a disengaged hierarchy. That's just not what... That's not what we at Gulf Coast believe we see when we read that. We We just don't see either of those. So instead, the elders in a local congregation act as a single body in the guidance of the church. This requires a context for open dialogue amongst them. The elders as a body, therefore, demonstrate to the larger church how people from different backgrounds and experiences should walk together in unity and love for one another as brothers. So if the elders, as the decision-making group, those who are supposedly worth emulation among the church, can't get along and make decisions, what does that say about Christ? The goal, one of the, I think, beauties of the way the Lord has established that is that as elders, when we meet, we are different. It's not a, it's not a rubber stamp event. We disagree, but we disagree like family members. Some of your families, that may be a bad analogy, but... <laughs> like brothers who love each other. <laughs> We want to hang out with each other. We like spending time together. Um, We enjoy each other's company and recognize each other's strengths. And so it's a pleasure. When I was first brought on on the advisory board, the first evening I came in and I'm listening and then they asked me about something and I just sort of gave my opinion on a few things and then I listened to the back and forth and man, it was lively. And then I asked a question and then Pete actually gave me this five-minute monologue explaining exactly the answer and, and everyone just turned and looked at him and said, man, we should have had that recorded. That was excellent. And it was. I was like, wow, this is really cool. I'm sitting in a room full of guys who really love the Lord and really care about the church and love working together, laboring together in the gospel. And don't mind the vigorous debate. That's right. Do not. <laughs> yes, yes. Some of the online back and forth is entertaining. <laughs> Let's see here. First Peter, just to... I trust I'm beating the dead horse at this point. First Peter chapter 5, 1 through 4, he talks about... To the elders among you, plural once again, shepherd, verse 2, that verb there is in the plural, although we can't see that in English, in in the original language, it's in the plural there, shepherd God's flock that is under your care, once again the you is in the plural there, which English doesn't reveal, but ancient Greek did. 
Although the New Testament does not specifically command churches to have plural elders, we are told specifically what the minimum qualifications are for elders, but we believe the evidence points in the direction, all the evidence points in the direction of plural elders. What I mean is to say, Paul never wrote, and there must be more than two elders, or two or more elders and everything. It's not explicit, but all the evidence points that way. But since it's not explicit, and he is explicit about character qualifications, that's where our emphasis goes. Therefore, the emphasis rests with having qualified men as leaders while always striving for a plurality. Too often churches and elders ordain, put into the office of elder, ordain someone who is unqualified just because he's the best they have or the most willing to do it. This can cause great damage to the growth of the church and harm that person who never should have been set in that office. These are some of the reasons why Paul warns against ordaining recent converts in 1 Timothy 3 and tells Timothy not to ordain someone too quickly in 1 Timothy 5.22. Because it can be bad for the person. We probably, we probably, most, if you've been around the church long enough, most of us have met that person who thought he was called to full-time vocational ministry and got in there and because of the way the system was set up or the training didn't take place, he gets into a church and then those people don't know him and don't love him. He doesn't know them, so he can't love them yet. And it doesn't take long before that person's back out the door and he's disillusioned. The people got hurt, the man got hurt, it's just, not, it's just not the best system, and it's unfortunate. To cap off that section, we have this quotation from Strauch, Alexander Strauch, in his book, Biblical Eldership. All elders then must be armed with a knowledge of Scripture and be able to teach, judge, exhort, admonish, shepherd, and defend the flock against false teacher. Scripture teaches that the entire eldership pastors God's flock and not just the a single pastor. I'm going to pause right there. This is where I tend to be different from some of the other guys who do this. I like to stop halfway and say, especially since this is so different for some people, this idea that there's an elder board and they're all pastors and they're all equally authoritative and they all get the same vote and there's not one guy who runs the show at the church. That tends to be different for a lot of people. So, if there are any questions about that, the way we come to that conclusion, or what it looks like here, I'd be happy to field those. What's the history of eldership at Gulf Coast? Is it a fairly new thing since the start? Go for it. That's a great question. Um, in, in, in Todd alluded earlier, we've come through a pretty big transition over the last two years in kind of how we're formally structured. Um, we've always held to the idea that Biblically, the term pastor, elder, um, uh, and, and uh, overseer are you know, basically interchangeable and synonymous. Um, however, we came out of a background that, you know, what that then equated was is the guys who were on staff and hired as pastors were the elders kind of in the discussion. But as we, we grew to see the biblical model, it, there wasn't anything about being on staff that was retired. It was character and gifting, and so uh, we began to, to see this plurality being an important element that we were, we had a plurality, but for the size of our church, I think we had far more qualified guys to be elders that weren't functioning in that role, I think it was not helpful to the church, so uh, over the last, really, several years, we've been moving in a direction uh, to go there, probably began four or five years ago, when we added because our bylaws didn't allow for a, a larger elder board, we just had an advisory board and kind of function the way we were going. <laughs> and then, and then we, and then we started moving toward the direction of, of uh, adjusting our bylaws, which the church then affirmed was it October, I believe, uh, new bylaws, which then allowed us to walk through a process. And, uh, basically, had I wanted to be the way the bylaws were written before, I could have been king. Um, you know, a very small nation, mind you. And that would not have been good. We never functioned that way, but we realized that's how they're written, and therefore that's not healthy for the long-term health of the church. 
Um, and uh, so we've, we've really moved into a, uh, a, a larger plurality, both vocational and non-vocational elders that are part of our uh, elder team now. My next question, who's vocational and who's non-vocational? Um, vocationally, myself, Darren, and Stephen, which simply means that's our vocation, that's what we get our paycheck. Uh, non-vocational, Todd, Pete, um, David Wilson, uh, and um, uh, Brian uh, Eiding. Right? I get them all. Right? Yes. So, that's mm -hmm. those are the non-vocational guys. So they're functioning in the capacity they just don't get a check from the church for Correct. They work elsewhere to get their pay. Mm -hmm. And it's a good question. When I, because elder model wasn't always the one that I grew up in, in, in my Christian experience, when I first heard about it, I thought it was a little odd, and then started reading more. And the way I've come to think of it is, uh, as far as the vocational non-vocational distinction, is um, there are certain people that a church agrees that even the other elders agree man, you need to be here all the time. You shouldn't have to go spend 40 hours a week to, to provide for your family. Instead, we want to, as a group, as the elders and as the church, to set aside some of the, the giving to give it to you so that you can be here studying the Scripture, meeting and counseling, organizing projects and missions, that sort of stuff. And that really helped me understand the heart of it instead of, or at least how it ought to be, instead of here's a guy who uh, can't get a job doing anything else, so he hangs around the church and we pay him whether or not he really earns it. Yeah, Pete. I just wanted to add about Jerry that just, since some of you may not know this, I'm a really good salesman and he's a better salesman. He could make a lot of money in the, and has made really good money, better money than he makes doing what he does. So we've got a good deal in being able to help feed his family so that he can feed us on Sunday morning. So it's, it's a good, it's a good deal. It works out really well. Yeah. God, I appreciate that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was just reading yesterday in Exodus about um, Moses and then how Jethro his father-in-law you know, mm -hmm. comes to see how he's doing, and right. Moses overwhelmed by all these responsibilities. Right. He's like, dude, this is just too much for you. You need to have, you need to delegate some of this out. Mm -hmm. So I really, you know, and that's a scary thing. I think probably even for Moses, he's looking around like, who am I going to delegate this out to? But it's such a great model of, of putting the trust back in the Lord's hands. And I, I was thinking that uh, yesterday, mm -hmm. just how neat that is, and how our country was even founded that way. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's neat to have that. I'm just glad Yeah, good, thank you. Yes? So the elders would choose Yeah, that's okay, that's a good question. Functionally, functionally, the way the bylaws are written, and um, I'll have to refer you to those. I'm not sure if they're accessible on Connect or how that we can, I'm sure we can do that somehow. But the way the bylaws are written, and, and some of this will come up here in a few minutes, is that it's both other elders and the church members. So it's both and. It's not, uh, as I'll mention, it's not congregationalism, but the elders canvas the congregation for names of people that they want the board to consider. And then out of those men, pray, discuss, meet with the men uh, whose names seem to keep coming up, that sort of thing. So it's a, it's a lengthy process. So between the time the bylaws were passed in November and now just the middle of March, that's how long it took to affirm the first set of non-vocational elders. So it's, it's a lot of discussion and prayer and meeting with those men and hearing from the congregation and, um, and then announcing those names and waiting for the congregation to come back and say, no, not that guy, you ought to know about, you know, that sort of thing. No, it's, uh, the elders ask, ask the congregation to supply names. Mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of participation in that too, which mm -hmm. is to see. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good questions. So functionally, that's how it looks on the ground. 
here at Gulf Coast. And then the final step is, is that the congregation that affirms those that are important. Yeah, that's right. So then after, after the names have come in and the elders have prayed and met with those people whose names seem to show up a good bit, then, then those names are released, like we said, and then a month out minimum is an affirmation vote. So then all those names are put back in front of the congregation. Here are men that you have, you have given us their names, and we have met with them and prayed about this, and we agree with, this, with these three, four, however many it, it is or will be. And so we're putting them back to you so that although there may have been a pocket of people who put forward a name, it's not just that pocket of people who gets a yes, no, Everyone gets to say, yes, um, that's someone that we want in, in that position. Does that, does that help? Good. Okay, good. All right, so I'll continue on uh, in section three, and I will probably speed up just a touch because... I think one thing, I love those, those moments right there where you get your questions explained, like how does that look right here. But there are some important points that I think we ought to address in addition. Um, so look at section three, leadership exercises servant authority. Pastors, elders, and overseers are called to lead the church. Just as a man is called to manage his own family, a pastor is called to care for the church by providing leadership. This involves guidance, direction, and discipline. So the paradigm for kingdom leadership is servanthood because care of the sheep is the goal of that leadership. It's not to, it's not to make you do, it's to help you grow. So 1 Timothy 3 Verses 4 and 5, An elder must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for someone does not know how to manage his own household. How will he care for God's church? So that's what he's supposed to be doing, is caring for God's church. So it's servant leadership. Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Church leaders are not called to lord it over their sheep, as Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, 3, but they are called to lead nonetheless. Although Christ has not called church leaders to act as tyrants, the Bible talks about church leaders as though a great amount of authority has been given to them. And you see uh, Brian Habig's quotation there, that if we are uncomfortable with the language of submitting to or obeying church leaders, the Scriptures are not the scriptures are not. If the scriptures aren't afraid to talk about obedience, that must mean there are true leader. There is some leading going on. So just how that authority looks is what differentiates church leaders from other types of leaders. And in Ephesians 4, verses 8 through 10, just after Paul tells us that Christ has given us grace gifts, and just before Paul tells us of the role of some who are called to be leaders... He appears to go on this tangent about Jesus coming to earth. But it isn't a tangent. It's a reminder about what leadership looks like in the church. So the verses 8 through 10, in saying, quote, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So Paul's point here, as he's talking about leadership positions, as he's talking about leaders as gifts, he says, yes, Jesus ascended to heaven and gave us gifts, but remember, that means he first descended from heaven to earth. Paul is inserting a purposeful gospel synopsis about Christ humbling himself and becoming a man in order to serve all of us. This is the type of leadership the elders are to reflect in their service to the church. Leadership in the body is not about climbing to the top rung of the ladder in church life, but it's about serving each other just as the Lord served all of us. And this is the same principle that Jesus, that Jesus stated to His disciples. Jerry preached on this recently, a dispute in Luke 22, when... 
the uh, disciples are, are, it's funny, in public, in front of people, doing that, what most of us would only dare to do in our minds. <laughs> and that's argue about who's most important. Right? So I'm thankful that they were that, I don't know, honest or transparent, because then we get to have moments like this where Jesus teaches us about what we would what we would be, of course, wise enough to hide from everyone else. Um, but he says in, in Luke 22, verses 24 through 27, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he, being Jesus, said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater... The one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you as the one who serves? So the Lord Jesus responds to the disciples' argument over greatness by dismantling what's a common misconception and then replacing it with gospel perspective. That serving and humility... That's the goal. <laughs> That's what you're pursuing. You're not climbing a ladder to get somewhere. That's what you're here to do. Just like that's what I'm here to do. Also, Peter tells the elders in 1 Peter 5, 2-3, through 3, that they, how they should exercise their care because they are willing as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge but being examples to the flock. So once again, that's how, it, that's how it works. It's teaching, it's character, it's being examples, it's serving, it's humility. And so one of the things I do around here, just because, I don't know, the Lord brought me in and just happened to meet Darren at a moment of desperation or something like that, and he said, what, you know about WordPress? You know how to do a podcast? You've done websites before? Here, have at it. So that's, that's just one of the things I do. And I like to do it. I'm a nerd. I love that stuff. I love gadgets and technology and ancient languages. I am a nerd. And those seem to be contradictory, but I love it. The older and the newer, both. The in-between stuff I don't care about so much. But super old and super new, I love. But that's what I'm... That's what I'm I do it because... I care about the people here, and I care about them having, having something that they can use, that they can go back and pull down the audio, that community group leaders can uh, listen to the audio again, and that sort of stuff. We're always striving to be better at it, but that's, that's, what, that's what we're here for. So the conclusion of that point is leadership in the kingdom of Christ is servant leadership that models gospel living to the flock. And here, Strauch again, eager leaders are driven to care for the sheep. The sheep are their life, their chief concern. Hence, they are not concerned about the personal sacrifice they make or their own financial gain. They go beyond minimal duty, self-interest, and money. They love to shepherd God's people. They love to shepherd God's people. And I can, I can tell you with honesty, with great thankfulness, that when the elders meet, they are praying about you. They are praying for you. They're talking about your needs. They're looking forward to how can we serve better and what's the next step in reaching out to the community. It's really exciting stuff. So let's take a look at four, section four there, leadership is accountable because one of the biggest problems is in the church and one of the most painful things that drives people away, that causes uh, fracture, is when leadership isn't accountable. And most of us who have been around long enough have seen someone who seems to be sort of the lone ranger. When, when your model allows for a man to run the whole thing his own way, you know, my way or the highway sort of thing, well, you tend to get a guy who likes to run things that way every now and again. It just is going to happen, unfortunately. And that can be really painful. Leaders are to be accountable. If we're servant leaders, then we're here to serve, and we're not here to, to dominate or be tyrants. 
So they're accounted for their actions and leadership in several ways. First one is that all human authority is delegated or derived. There is no absolute authority, authority among men, among human beings. God alone is sovereign, and the Lord Jesus is the only head of the church. And in fact, the Bible is clear that all authority on heaven is derived authority. So Romans 13.1 tells us there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And then... Once again, Paul talking to the Ephesian elders in Acts twenty twenty eight. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. God has delegated that position, that authority to them. So God puts people in charge of his servants to provide the care of the servants by feeding, nurturing, watching over them. And that's exactly what the Lord expects to be taking place. In Luke 12, 42 through 43, Jesus is speaking, and the Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager who, whom the master puts in charge? And that word there is the same word for to ordain, to put into, to install into an office. Who puts in charge... Of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time. It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. This verse applies to all believers, but it's especially relevant for elders who are set in place for the care of God's servants and their well-being. They had better be found feeding the sheep when the chief shepherd returns. In fact, elders are subject to the Lord's discipline and will answer for the manner in which they treat God's flock. In the opening chapters of Revelation, Jesus tells John to send letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. We find that the Lord Jesus walks among the churches as a judge and king. He's observing the actions of his people and their leaders. Some false teachers and deceptive leaders are personally addressed and warned of impending punishment. Despite the highly symbolic nature of the book, what shines through in those passages is that Christ is intimately aware of the activities of his church and has great concern for its purity and perseverance. He'll name names and take actions, not only in the hereafter, but even in the present. So sometimes it may look to us that some of these false teachers and abusive leaders are getting away with it. But the scriptures teach us very clearly there is no getting away with abusing God's flock. He is watching and he cares. Good. Amen. Elders are under the Lord's watchful eye now, and they will give an account when he returns. Okay, so that's the first way that they're. Under authority. The second way is that uh, all authority of church leaders is derived from and tethered to, tied to the scripture. So if you'll turn to Titus chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, Paul writes to Titus talking about how elders ought to teach, how teachers ought to be. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. There is no authority for an elder outside of holding to the word. Those who depart from the word lose all spiritual authority in the church and must be silenced, just as Paul tells Titus here. This is one of the reasons why it's an important qualification that an elder be able to teach, because part of the protection is silencing false teachers. This does not mean that every nuance of biblical interpretation is grounds for disqualifying an elder from his office. Nevertheless, teaching different so-called gospels and clearly unbiblical doctrines requires a disciplinary response for the safety and health of God's people. If the elders here at Gulf Coast depart from the truths of Scripture, remove them from office... Or go somewhere that maintains allegiance to the Bible. 
If, if we somehow have decided to derive our authority from something other than the Bible or teaching something other than the Bible, shut us down. Tell us, tell us we're done. That's part of the new bylaws. You have that ability to remove elders from office. That's a lengthier process, but that's there now. It didn't exist before. Elders are subject to the same restraints of Scripture that members are as models of gospel living. Elders live out the mandates of the kingdom of God as all other members of the church should. In fact, being an example for others requires a higher standard of elders in some senses. The New Testament teaches that elders are not above the law, and in fact there is and should be recourse for those who have been wronged by an elder. 1 Timothy 5.19, Paul says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. This verse must imply that there has to be a process so that you can actually hear charges brought up against an elder then, so it can be dealt with. That leads right into what we're talking about, that authority is delegated to elders, both, as we were discussing earlier, both by the current elders and the congregation in some respect. That authority is granted. Matthew 18 makes clear that in matters of church discipline, final authority in the church rests with Jesus exercised through the church as a congregation. If you were to go and read Matthew 18, he's talking about if someone sins against you, go and try to win him privately. If, if he doesn't listen to you, take some witnesses. If he still doesn't listen to you, eventually it winds up before the church is what Jesus says, before the ecclesia, before the congregation, before the church. In 1 Timothy 5.19, if the charges are brought against an elder, the only place Scripture defines for them to be heard is before the church. Hence, the church in the end holds an elder to account. If then the congregation holds Jesus' authority to remove an elder from fellowship in the church and by default from his office, then one would expect to find the congregation involved in the process of identifying elders. And this is exactly what we find in the New Testament. Where we find examples of leaders being chosen in the church, the congregation is involved. So in Acts 1, the apostles led the congregations in qualifications and the need, and the congregation puts forth two men as the replacements for Judas, from whom through prayer and casting lots the Lord selected one, and he was set in office by the laying on of the apostles' hands. So that's the interaction I was talking about before, how it's the elders were setting the qualifications, the apostles in this sense, setting the qualifications, pointing out the need, explaining the biblical warrant for somebody to come in, and then putting it out. Who, who do you think? And then when they get those names back, they're prayerfully considering, and then they're the ones that put them in office. So that's sort of the dynamic that we're attempting to follow. Also, in Acts chapter 6, although we're not talking about elders there, we're talking about some sort of proto-deacon, deacons before they were deacons, before that was a thing, some sort of early form of deacons perhaps. The twelve summoned the church together and had the church put forth seven men as candidates according to qualifications the apostles had laid out. So once again, it's that same dynamic. The leadership putting out, seeing the need, wanting to meet the need, putting out the qualifications, asking the people for names, and then when those names are brought, those apostles, those elders, then decide which one among those ought to, would best serve the church in those roles. Does that, does that make sense to everybody where we're going that? Okay. The list of qualifications for elders given in Timothy and Titus indicates some form of congregational involvement in identifying these men because how else would Titus have known when he showed up in Crete which men fit those qualifications? Hi, I'm here. Uh, we'll take Bill. We'll take Joe. We'll take Bob. You're all elders now. Hope you all like it. Well, of course not. That would make no sense. But he'd show up. He'd meet with the people. He'd hear them. He'd see how these men lived, hear from the congregation. Otherwise, you're left with this really strange, it just sort of shows up and picks guys uh, thing, which probably... Probably not what he did. And from the Old Testament through the New, 
uh, as was mentioned earlier, we find a common practice of congregational involvement in choosing leaders in that delegation that was uh, talked about before. This does not indicate congregational rule, but an elder team which in some way has been affirmed by the congregation. Authority is delegated to the elders from the Lord Jesus and affirmed by the congregation. This is not to set aside the importance of men having an inward witness or sense of call or to minimize the input of other elders who know them. However, the congregation is an indispensable part of the selection process. Following that process, like we described, that's when elders then ordain or put into office other elders. And this is one of the reasons why membership is so important. Because if you are not a member, non-members just don't, it's, they don't get a say. They don't get a say. Have to be a member. Have to have bought in. So it's about, in some ways, it's about buy-in. Yes, commitment. Absolutely. Uh, so I hope that helped clarify where we get that process from for you and, and why we feel that that's the biblical model. Let's see here. Next section. And these last couple sections will be fairly quick. It's just sort of to round out our perspective on what is an elder and what are, what are they doing uh, in the church So the pastor, the elders are disciple makers, but you are too. Of course, most of us are familiar with the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. As a shepherd, teacher, an elder must be actively making disciples. It's one of the things Jerry's doing on Sunday morning and throughout the week. Who in turn will make disciples and do the work of ministry. Teaching is a critical aspect of the elder's role. The ability to teach is the only skill level qualification. There are quotations from Bill Hole. Disciple making introduces people to the Savior, builds them to maturity, and trains them to reproduce and be effective for Christ. That is the work of the church and the commanded work of the pastor. According to Ephesians 4.14, the grace of church leaders is to have the effect that the church is doctrinally mature. The members will then be equipped to serve by speaking truth in love, promoting growth, and working toward mutual edification. In other words, the work of grace-gifted leaders is to prepare and equip each member to do the ongoing work of serving one another in love, to do ministry. Elders, pastors, overseers are ministers. We like to use that term, they're ministers, but every member of the church is called to be a minister. The job of the elder is to train the rest of the church to do the work of the ministry as well. So this is the very ministry that Paul describes in his letter to the Colossians, Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. Piper says, pastoral care is the loving concern of Christ for his, for his flock, which he shows them provide, by providing under shepherds, whose duty it is to equip the saints to minister care for each other. Elders, pastors, they provide pastoral care so that in turn you will provide loving family care to one another. That means leads into our last point that it's not just a one-direction system here. This is not a unilateral elders just go, everything goes one direction. There isn't some mutual, as we described, there's mutual accountability, there's mutual edification. And at the same time, if there is true leadership, then there must be some leading going on. To this point, we've mentioned many of the responsibilities of the elders, that the elders have toward Christ and the church, but members of the church have responsibilities toward their leaders as well. 1 Timothy 5.17 says, The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those who work in preaching and teaching. Double honor. Now, we could... Discuss what is meant there. There is diversity in Christendom about what that means. But 
there's some pretty clear, it's pretty clear that it starts with respect, recognition, and, and includes other things like compensation, like we've discussed. That there are some denominations who, for some reason, because Paul makes one comment in the letter to Corinthians that he, that he didn't take any money from them so that the work of the gospel would not be uh, hindered in any way, they then take that to mean no vocational pastor should ever get paid somehow. It's a, it's a strange twist of logic. But Galatians 6, 6 through 9, Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word, the congregation members, should share all good things with their instructor. Should share all good things. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The author of the letter to the Hebrews seems to have a very different approach from some of these denominations that think that vocational elders should not be paid. Uh, in fact, it is the biblical model. And then in Hebrews 13, 17 again, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So these verses address two key responsibilities congregants have towards their leaders. First, elders and their monetary compensation is a matter of mutual trust. Just like you trust the elders to faithfully use your offerings for the work of the ministry, especially the vocational elders, but the elders in general trust you to faithfully give. It works both ways. This also is a matter of spiritual attitude. This is not just a practical thing. This is about your heart of generosity. This is about your heart of serving too. Second thing that these verses tell us is that honor, respect, and submission ought to flow from members of the church in recognition that elders are laboring both for the Lord Jesus and for them. As, as we receive from the, those who serve us, it ought to inspire in us gratitude, not a sense of which happens from time to time. That guy doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm going to fix him up. I'll catch him after, after church. That sort of thing. But instead, some honor and respect. Now, that's not a claim to infallibility. But if the attitude is typically, I know better than these guys, instead of respect and honor and submission, then you have to ask yourself, what is the author of Hebrews talking about? Right? Or if there's a genuine problem with the leadership, then you need to address that problem through the processes of, of removing that. But yes, I appreciate that. And yeah, I agree. Um, that is the close of um, my presentation on leaders, this class on leadership in the church, that it's servant leadership first and foremost, that it's delegated authority, authority from the Lord, and that the congregation participates that in multiple ways. That as servants, the elders are a plurality. And they serve together for the growth of the body, for your benefit, to help in maturity and in purity. Uh, so I'm going to close in prayer, and then we can take some questions, and then.